Well, good morning, Colonial Baptist Church. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews. When we get to this point in the text, uh, we come to the fourth great warning in the book of Hebrews. I'm more and more convinced that the book is arranged like a sermon with five doctrinal sections that lead it into five warnings. I hope that helps you as you keep the whole book together and consider the entire message of the book. But today we come into that large fourth warning section. The author has been giving us solid food uh, for the mature about the priesthood of Jesus. Remember they said, uh, perhaps they were thinking that they didn't want to hear about the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. But the author of Hebrews warns them and calls them sluggish and says he has a hard time getting into this because uh, they're just not able to use the word of righteousness. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he continues through chapter 7 through 10. He tells them all about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, in this section, uh, we come to uh, a place where it's, it's like a, a large, rich, deep symphony woven together to, in, in perfect rhythm and harmony to portray the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ and its significance for our sins. Here in the text that we come to in verse 19, in this warning, uh, he, he breaks away into a passage that itself is magisterial. There are three parts to this warning, three paragraphs from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 29. He starts the warning and he ends it on positive notes. Um, he starts uh, by summarizing the privileges that they've been given in Jesus Christ and by declaring their necessary response to him that Jesus has, has made available to them. He does that in verses 19 through 25. And at the end of the passage, he, he gives a final exhortation to them. He encourages them as well in those verses. In the middle comes one of the strongest warnings in the Bible in verses 26 through 31, where he talks about the consequence of rejecting Jesus and his one-time sacrifice for sins. And so what I'd like to do is take our next two sermons to work through this warning passage, Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. Today, we'll look at verses 19 through 25. Um, the symphony, as we have said, is now finished. And one might wonder how he should respond to this, this awesome doctrinal section about Jesus. Should we stand and give an ovation? Should we bow to our knees and pray? Should we just leave the symphony, you know, being unaffected by what the words of Scripture say? Well, that's what the author is going to help us understand in verses 19 through 25. He's going to describe the initial necessary response for his readers. I think his thoughts here are organized uh, uh, in this passage around two resources and three requirements. And you can see these very easily in your Bible. So if you've got a Bible, I just would encourage you to pull it out and, and to look in verses 19 through 21 for the word since. It occurs two times to, uh, to give the author's summary of two resources that Jesus has provided for them. So in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter. And then verse 21, and since we have a great high priest. So he starts with these two resources that are ours in the new covenant because of Jesus. And then he gives three Commands, and those are easy to see in the text as well. So if you're looking at verses 
22, 23, and 24, just look for the words, let us. It's verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And finally, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another. And so this section is quite easy to follow. The outline is simple. The words since come from participles, one real and one implied, that relate to the commands that he gives. And the author's argument goes something like this in big picture. He's saying since we have certain resources in Jesus, we must respond in specific ways. And so that's how we'll work through this this text. I want to start with the responses, uh, or I'm sorry, the resources that are ours in verses 19 through 21. Again, there are two of these highlighted with the word since. Look with me at the first one, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, here we have our first resource. We have confidence to draw near or to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. These verses, I think the author is reviewing privileges or resources that he's described in that doctrinal section. This first one is the word confidence. The word speaks of the boldness that Jesus believers feel. This is a joyful confidence that we know because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. But the author tells us that he's got a specific kind of confidence or boldness in his mind. He says, we are the ones who are bold to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus. Here, Jesus' blood, the text says, creates a new and a living way that opens this up for us, opens up a way for us into the presence of God. What we know uh, as we consider these words here, men and women, is that this way did not exist before Jesus shed his blood on the cross. No, the text says it's new and it's still open because Jesus is living. So this is a living way because Jesus is living. And so the author then gives a metaphor for how all of this is achieved and uses this little phrase. He says, and this all occurred through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Here the word curtain is one that we've seen in Hebrews before, but here the author's using it, I think, in a different way. Uh, Back in other places in chapter 6, in verse 19, in chapter 9, in verse 3, the curtain was the barrier that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. It's also used in analogy of a separation, separating humanity from God in heaven. Uh, there it was the barrier that kept people out. But in this passage, he changes the metaphor to, he he moves it from a barrier to an entrance so that Jesus' flesh in a metaphorical way is like a curtain or a veil that is open or provides open access to God. See, Jesus' body was torn open, providing access to God like a veil that would be torn open from top to bottom that now invites people to worship God in holy intimacy in his presence. 
So we have boldness to enter because of the new way that Jesus opened for us. That leads to another resource. There's just two of these. Remember, two since phrases. You look at verse 21, you see the second resource we have. We have a great priest. Look at verse 21. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So we have a priest over God's house. I think the language here is similar to uh, an earlier place in the book of Hebrews. I I invite you to just look over at Hebrews chapter 3 and uh, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, believers have more now than a faithful representative or a faithful connection or insider in the household of God. We have the one who is over it. We have the son and the priest who is over God's house. So this is how the author of Hebrews is summarizing some of the resources that we have up until this point. We have the this, uh, we, we have this confidence to enter the holy places and we have a great priest. And that leads then to verses 22 through 25 where the author gives us some requirements or some ways that we should respond to the resources we've been given in and through Jesus. There are three of these again and they're highlighted with the words, let us. Let's look at the first one in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first way we should respond after this great symphony and, and all of the things that God has given to us in Jesus is we should draw near to God. The words, uh, this, this I, I think, uh, is a, a very familiar concept to us. It's one we've even talked about earlier in Hebrews. But it's, it's one that I think often the, the depth of this concept and the ability to draw near and the depth of what the author of Hebrews says about it here is, is one that often believers just don't really appreciate. So I want to take a little closer look at this verse with you, verse 22. Here the author starts with a requirement based on Jesus' work. Since Jesus is a great priest over God's house, we should go right in to worship God and spend time with him. I think this could be describing corporate gatherings and the way we can worship there, but I think also just private, your private individual worship. We should, we should draw near to God because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, added to these descriptions of drawing near, uh, are two descriptions of how we should go in. And so I take the, the middle part of verse 22. Let us draw near with two descriptions of how we should go in, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, so I think this is important for us, Colonial. This is our part in responding. What should we do? We should draw near. And in what way should we do it? We should go in there to worship God in a twofold way. First, with a true heart. It could be translated a sincere heart. So there's sincerity in our heart as we go to worship God. 
And secondly, he says, in full assurance of faith. So when we worship God, we are to go in with a firm conviction or full confidence of faith. As we come to this little phrase, full assurance of faith, I think it's a bit difficult for us to consider and to, uh, to understand what he's saying. I think for many of us, this is just a bit fuzzy, or we read over it quickly and we don't think about it. We don't know exactly what he means when he says, when you go, when you draw near to God, you should do so with full assurance of faith. So what does this mean? Well, I think that there's another passage that can help us understand this. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul uses the expression full assurance to describe the way he and some of his missionary partners in the gospel believed in the power of the gospel itself. So the text I have in mind, and maybe you've thought of this, is, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. There in that passage, Paul says, For our gospel came, came to you not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and with full assurance. Same phrase here, full assurance. And so as I preached that passage to you a while ago, I said that that was describing the full assurance of the preachers. Paul and his partners were fully convinced. They were absolutely persuaded that the gospel was going to work in Thessalonica. Paul had a firm conviction about it. And so that is, men and women, how we should be drawing near to God. We should go to God believing that Jesus has opened up the way to God through his one-time sacrifice for our sins. And so when we go to the Lord drawing near to him in our personal devotions or corporate worship, we don't go stammering. We don't go fearful, afraid that we're going to get zapped by God or something like that. No, because of Christ, God tells us in this passage, come on in, come on in, you can worship. And men and women, we need to kill all of the reasons that we might create or have for why we're not worthy to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to go with the full assurance of faith that Jesus has opened the way and I can go in and worship him. Your time of private devotion at times, your conscience might be pinging you, might be convicting you, saying you, you are a terrible, wicked sinner. Or you, you, you did it again. How could you fail again? You can't go to worship God. You can't go to pray to him. But God responds here in this passage. God says, come on in. Draw near to me. Jesus' blood has provided the way. It's the new and living way for which you can draw near. And I think that's also where the end of verse 22 emboldens us to do, so, do that. The end of verse 22, you come to two parallel uh, phrases uh, that uh, describe things that God has done for us. It says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I really love this part of the passage, too, because at this part, I think, you know, uh, right before this, this, that was our part. That's how we should go to draw near to God with, with uh, full assurance of faith and with a genuine heart. 
sincere heart. But this is God's part. This is, and the grammar is helpful here for this is something that God has already done for us. So that we are the ones that God has sprinkled clean and washed with pure water. I love this second half of verse 22 for these two phrases of sprinkled and washed. That they're modifying the word us. Let us draw near. They're describing what God has already done for us in the past. So God says, Come on in. You are sprinkled and you have been washed. Come close to me, child of mine. Draw near to me. This is our first response. And I think it's one of the only fitting responses, right, to this amazing work of Jesus Christ. On our behalf, we can draw near to him with full confidence that he's, he's made it possible. The second requirement is found in verse 23. And I'll, I'll just look at this one with you quickly. You see the words, let us, at the beginning of the verse. Let's read it together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here, the second requirement for us, the second way we should respond is we should fix our hold on to something or hold tightly to something. Specifically, the text says that we should hold tightly to our confession or our profession of hope. And I, I think that uh, what he's generally saying here is that hope is the object or the subject that we are professing. We confess this hope. I think the author's already told us a little bit about the hope that is what we are to hold, uh, that, that we are to confess and hold tightly to. This hope in chapter 6 and verse 18, uh, we, we learned in that passage that we are continued to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then the author tells us that this hope involves going into God's presence as Jesus himself has already accomplished or done. We, we have that hope that we'll be able to do that as well. Chapter 7 and verse 19, we see that we have a better hope than the hope of the old covenant and what it promised. For our hope is it enables us to draw near to God. Later on in the book, in chapter 11, verse 1, the very next chapter, we'll learn more about hope. And there we see that faith involves the assurance of things for which presently we're now hoping. And so I think what he's doing in this passage is he's telling us that there is a future substance that we will one day experience. There are future blessings we will one day have, but today we call those things hope. I think that the hope he's specifically telling us to keep on confessing and professing is the hope of drawing near to God. So we must confess this hope firmly. And the reason we can do so is sourced outside of ourselves. We can hold fast to this profession of our hope because God has made promises to us about it and because God is always faithful to his promises. So you've got these two requirements, draw near to God and hold fast to the confession of the hope that you can do that. That leads to one last requirement in verses 24 and 25 and two that I think are very important for our church. Look down in your Bibles at verse 22. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day 
drawing near. The last response to Jesus' sacrifice and his priesthood that the author requires is to consider one another. That is the actual object of our considering or our thinking or our pondering here. We're to be thinking, considering each other. Once we do that, we should consider or think about the ways that we can stir up one another in certain, certain ways. As we go through this passage, I want you to know that this is a powerful command. Of course, this is a powerful command in, in the original context. Just think about the author of Hebrews and what some of his Jewish listeners were considering doing. They were considering walking away from Jesus Christ, going back to the Mosaic law and abandoning their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So here the author tells them, you need to consider others. You need to consider how you can stir them up or provoke them not to do so, not to go back. This expression, though, stir up itself, I think, is a very vivid and a powerful word. I found these words stir up in, in only one other passage of the New Testament. They're in, it's Acts chapter 15. And we won't take the time to go back there because I think you might be familiar with the text. In Acts chapter 15, after the Jerusalem Council, as Paul and Barnabas are thinking about going out on their next missionary journey, they get into an argument about John Mark and whether they should take him on their journeys. And the text in Acts 15 calls that a sharp disagreement, a sharp provocation. It meant to provoke. And so when the author of Hebrews uses this word, challenging us to consider how we might stir up one another, he's saying how we might provoke each other. Of course, he's not using it in the negative way of Acts 15. He's using it provoking to good things. Like how one commentator captured the force of this word. He says, as forcefully as some provoke others to anger. God's people should provoke one another to love and to good works. We should be the sort that are imagining, considering, calculating ways whereby we might provoke other believers to pursue love and to demonstrate good works. And before we go farther in this passage, I, I just want to point out, I think, a few important emphases to you about this text. There's some things I saw that I, I, some of these I won't say much about because I just don't have a lot of time. But uh, first, I, I want you to notice uh, in these three let us statements in verses 22, 23, and 24, something else the author of Hebrews is doing. Have you ever noticed that in these three verses, in verse 22, 23, and 24, the author uses the great Christian group of three, the triad, faith, hope, and love. So in verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love. I've preached here long enough, I know, and, and I, I'm sure my predecessors and other pastors who have preached here before as well have talked to you about the importance of this great group of three. 
these three words, faith, hope, and love, and the virtues they represent, summarize the whole or the totality of the Christian experience. And so I just find it fascinating. I find it awe-striking that the Holy Spirit of God leads this author to give us three requirements or three ways we should respond. We should respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. And these three things include faith, hope, and love. As we look at that third one, I I also want to just point out what the author is pushing or tells us that we should push others towards. He first says love. We're to push each other to love. And this makes sense for love is the mark of genuine Christian discipleship. Remember what Jesus says in the Gospels, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the mark of Christian discipleship. Love is also the Christian virtue. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that exalts the virtue of love. I think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 about loving God and loving neighbor. It's the supreme virtue for believers. So no wonder why the author of Hebrews says, I want you to spend some time considering how you might provoke other believers to love. So important. But then he also says, I want you to think about how you could provoke them to good works. To good works. I think that's just another way of saying love. Okay, so uh, if, we're ten, if we are tempted to think of love as like a mental thing, an internal thing, an intellectual thing, this is what love looks like. Love produces good works. Love is not just a nebulous thing, but it must manifest itself outward in beneficent acts that we demonstrate to others. Later in Hebrews chapter 13, I think the author of Hebrews tells us even more about what these good works could be gives us a list of things that, the, that we are to be pursuing as followers and believers of Jesus Christ. And some of these things, I think, would, would fall within the category of the good works that we should be pushing one another to. In chapter 13 and verse 2, he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I think that's the sort of thing we should be provoking one another to pursue, to demonstrate hospitality to others. He says also that we are to be remembering those who are being mistreated and afflicted, perhaps even some Christians who are in jail or prison. We are to be remembering them and ministering to them. That's the sort of good works that we should be pushing each other to pursue. Chapter 13, he says that we're all to be holding marriage in honor and we're not to be defiling the marriage bed. That's the sort of things that we should be provoking one another toward. Near, in verses 5 and 6 of that text, he also says that we should keep free from the love of money. We should be telling each other this and that we should be content with what we have for we have the Lord and his abiding presence. These are the sort of good works that we should be pushing each other toward. And so I wanted you to see that in, in verse 24 there, this, this is what we are to be doing. Considering how to stir up one another to these two things, love and good works. Uh, But then finally, I want you to see and consider how the author says we might stir each other up to these things. The author imagines two means of stirring others up in this passage. 
two ways, okay? And uh, so this is a, a great way to end the sermon, okay? Because uh, in sermons, sometimes we're just wondering, you know, uh, what should I take away from this? How should I respond? What should I do? Well, these are the two means of stirring up others. These are two things you should leave here thinking about and be committed to. They're both found in participle form. The first one, he says that we are not to be neglecting the gatherings. And secondly, we should be encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. And so let me just talk about those two participles. First is not neglecting the gatherings. Here the author says the, the very way that we stir up one another is by going to the assembly of believers. Now when I've heard preaching on verse 25, I've heard this very strongly. It says not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And I, I've heard strong warnings about skipping out on the Sunday morning worship service for things like, you know, don't get in the habit of sleeping in on Sundays. Don't get in the habit of golfing or going out on your boats on Sunday. And I, but you cannot neglect the gathering of God's people on Sunday. I think that's a good application I think it can be an habitual problem for some believers to skip out on that particular corporate worship service. And I think especially as you see this phrase right after, you just see uh, the danger here. It says, as is the habit of some. Here the author of Hebrews seems to be dividing up his readers or listeners into two groups. Okay, so there were some who were getting together faithfully attending the corporate gatherings together. And there were some who were habitually avoiding gathering together. You see, they had a habit of non-participation. Now, let me just take a moment here before I get to the second participle and just draw out some applications for us. And just in a moment of transparency, Uh, Perhaps this is a bit of an unfair time for me to talk about the need for you to faithfully uh, attend corporate gatherings as uh, you're sitting at home during a pandemic. But let me just draw out a few applications. First, do you know that there are some families or members at Colonial who skip the morning worship service just about every week they might come to ABS, adult Bible studies. Uh, you know, it's, it's later, it's easier to get to. But they skip the corporate gatherings and specifically the Sunday morning worship service. I remember uh, seeing this trend uh, captured and I, I'm just a bit oblivious on Sunday mornings. You know, I'm just ready to preach and ready to minister and I'm talking with believers, but I don't sometimes know who's not here. But uh, we did some, uh, some overhead pictures of our assembly. And uh, sometimes these pictures are taken uh, during the morning worship service and then sometimes during ABS. And you just saw whole groups of people who weren't here for the morning service. The cars weren't here. And all of a sudden, you know, 15, 20 cars appear for ABS. And then as we did that a few times, you see some of those cars are the same cars. There's some people who make it a, it's, it's a habitual pattern 
where they skip out on the Sunday morning worship service. By the way, I think if you hear or you see someone doing this, uh, you should say something to them. I know I will. Um, I think it could start with us asking, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? You're you're neglecting the assembling together of believers. This is uh, an important thing. This, This is a way... Uh, this, is, this is a danger, I think, that the author of Hebrews believes could lead to the person walking away from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Another application I thought of, though, is, do you know, uh, Colonial, that there are about 250 of us that only come to the Sunday morning worship service? I think that number is about right, 250 of us. To those 250 people, I say, I I don't know what you do with your time. I don't know why only one hour of time with other believers in your week is your preferred method. But these sort of people don't participate in other gatherings. They don't come to the adult Bible study hour. They're not at grace gatherings. They skip out on Sunday evening corporate gatherings, which are designed to enhance our understanding of the word and minister to others. You don't go to midweek prayer services. You didn't go to midweek prayer services when we had them. The thought of praying with other people perhaps was distasteful to you. You don't participate in the equip classes. You, you don't go to church picnics. And I think, I think that's especially bad when you consider what those other gatherings are designed specifically for. They're specifically designed, for the most part, to enable you to minister to others by encouraging them. I want you to notice what the text says at the end of verse 25, these two parallel things. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice what it says in this text, that when we are gathering together, our purpose is for the encouragement of one another. And so my heart is burdened for some of you who in the past have habitually avoided putting yourself in places or any kind of grouping, smaller grouping in our church where this sort of thing could happen. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the Sunday morning worship service is is very important for in that service we're, we're hearing preaching of the Word of God, heralding of the Word of God. And we're singing together uh, in in, in an attempt to worship God and to mutually encourage one another. But the Sunday morning service is limited in how much you can be encouraging one another. I think it's hard for you to be helping and provoking and encouraging one another during that service only. Instead, we have all kinds of other gatherings during the week where we would encourage you to minister to one another. So don't you see, as I close here, that this is what God requires of us. This is what the scriptures say, 
Some of the Hebrews were in danger of walking away from the faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I would argue that some of us are as well. So as a response to Jesus' work in this passage, I think the author of Hebrews tells us to respond vertically, right? Worship the Lord. That's what you should do because of what Jesus has done. Worship the Lord. Draw near to him. Hold fast your hope of drawing near to him. But then here at the end, he also encourages us to engage each other horizontally. Look around. Consider. Think about how you might be able to provoke one another to pursue love and good works. And consider the fact that the author of Hebrews explains exactly how you can do that by not neglecting the gathering and by encouraging one another as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. I pray that as we close here, your heart will be stirred. You have much time to think during this pandemic. Got a lot of things to think through. I would hope that you would consider the way that you would respond to Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. He loved you so much. He died in your place. And a fitting response of yours is to draw near to God in worship, to hold fast to that hope, then to consider how you might stir other believers up to pursue love and good works. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as we come before you, I pray that you would help us as we consider how we might properly worship you this week. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be afraid of drawing near to you. Thank you that we can come in full assurance of faith, knowing that Jesus has opened up a new and living way to enable us to go before you. Thank you that that is the sort of confession we can hold on to and we can hold tightly to. And thank you, dear Father, that as well, uh, we have other brothers and sisters in the faith that we, we need to love and we need to consider. Lord, give us a moment this Sunday when we listen to the sermon and we engage in it and we think through this text. Give us a moment to consider how we can engage one another uh, with the word of God and push one another to love and to demonstrations of good works. Lord, help us to encourage one another by faithfully attending assemblies, gatherings, by making it a point to be rubbing shoulders and elbows with other followers of Jesus Christ and pushing them. Lord, we know that at any moment Jesus could return. It's just a little while until he returned. And so I pray that this message would be urgent for us today as we see your day drawing near. In Jesus' name, amen.